So our scripture passage this morning, kind of our jumping off point, is um, I think a pretty familiar parable to most of us, maybe not all of us. But we find it in Luke chapter 18. Luke 18, the first few verses. I don't remember the first how many. It's the first, um, first eight verses. Luke 18, beginning at verse 1 and reading through verse 8. It's on page 1628 in your pew Bibles, if you're going to follow along on paper. Otherwise, the words will be on the screens as well. This is the parable of the persistent widow. So 18, beginning at verse 1. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. Uh, For some time, he refused. But finally, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay. So this morning, early on in our journey to better understand this gift of prayer that God has given us, I think it's really, really important to answer two big questions for ourselves, okay? We've got two big questions to answer. First, does God have the power to answer our prayers? In other words, is God able, okay? The second question is this, does God have the desire to answer our prayers or uh, is he willing? That's where the sermon title comes from, able and willing. Usually it's willing and able, but able and willing because I want to deal with them in that order. Because I want to deal with these questions because really if you think about it, if you haven't answered these questions for yourself in your own heart, if you are not convinced of the answers, then your prayer life is going to be deficient in some pretty significant ways. If you're not sure that God is able to do things, if you're not sure that God is willing to do things. Now, as I consider the makeup of this congregation and also my own personal experience and struggles, I would assume... I would just assume that the first question, is God able, is less of an issue or less of a concern than the second question. And so we're going to spend most of our time this morning uh, dealing with God's willingness and desire to answer our prayers. But that said, when it comes to God's ability to answer prayers or our confidence in God's power, I think we do at least need to touch on it, okay? It bears mentioning. Because I suspect that there are at least some of us who don't pray confidently to God about our deepest and most um, burdensome needs, okay? 
We reach out with God and, and we hope and, and are pretty sure that he is, he is standing there with open arms spread out towards us, ready to hear our requests. But then, like at least in practice, we fall back and we try and deal with the difficulties or the problems we have in life on our own steam and on our own strength. Because at some basic and, and perhaps unconscious level, we uh, doubt that God can really make a difference in the problems that we're facing? Well, this is where the word of God, his revelation of himself through redemptive history is so valuable. It is so encouraging, and I hope that it motivates us. It settles that question of God's ability so that we can pray effectively and pursue that relationship in a very thriving sort of way. And in the Bible, the Bible, which comes from outside of ourselves, this is God's revelation of himself. We read about the power of God over nature. We read about the power of God over circumstances. We read about the power of God over people's lives. The Bible reinforces again and again the doctrine of God's sovereign power over the universe and over the circumstances of our lives. And you know, that's, that's all well and good. But we don't want to just simply agree with the doctrine of God's sovereignty, right? We want to own it. I mean, we want to own it for ourselves, which is a, a different matter altogether. I mean, it's, it's one thing to own the doctrine of God's sovereignty over history, right? As it's kind of expressed in the Bible and throughout Christian history, we, we all are familiar with some amazing stories, amazing God-initiated things that have happened throughout history. But you know, it's another thing. It's another thing completely to own the doctrine of God's sovereign power today to own the doctrine of God's power, his ability in our families and in our churches and in our communities and in our worlds. And I want you to consider for a moment the times that you have. I want you to think about a time or times when you have been absolutely confident in God's power, absolutely confident that God is in control. I want you to think about a time in your life when, when that's something that you felt. When you are confident, when you are confident in God's power and ability, do you tend to make better or worse decisions? When I'm thinking about God's power and God's sovereignty, I'm going to make better decisions. How about you? Okay, when you're confident of God's ability and God's power, um, do you experience more or less comfort in your life? Like you're just, you're, you're less troubled by trivial things. You're, you're at peace. You, you know God's got it. I would say we experience a great deal more comfort when we are confident in God's power and ability. Um, lastly, when you are confident in God's ability and power, do you have more or less purpose in your life? I don't know about you, I have a ton more purpose 
when I am confident that God is in control. He is sovereign over history and he's sovereign over the future and God's got a plan and he's invited me to be a part of it. And that gives me purpose, man. That gives me purpose. That gives me a reason to wake up every morning. It gives me a reason to do my best in whatever situation God puts me in. You see how valuable, see how valuable this is. Trust in God's power and ability. God is able. The Bible repeats those words over and over and over again. And I would argue that our experience bears that out over and over and over again as well. When you own the doctrine of God's sovereign power, your prayer life will be characterized by boldness and confidence You will be blessed with that conviction that God is in control and that he has the power to do anything. He has the power to change anyone. He has the power to intervene in any circumstance. So then God is able. And that's what I have to say about that. But that leads to the next question. The one that I said was a little bit more sticky, at least for me, and I would suspect for you as well. Is God willing? Is God willing? Well, Jesus just so happened to tell his disciples a story to help them understand how God feels about their prayers. That's the story that we read, by the way. And unfortunately, many Christians actually misunderstand this story. In fact, um, some people think that it teaches just the opposite of what it actually teaches. The main character of the story is this widow. Now, it's never easy to be a widow, but being a widow in first century Israel was um, often a particularly desperate situation, okay? A widow generally had no education, no job, no money, no property, no power, no status. If she had a son that was willing to care for her, then she would survive, sure, But if not, she might very well be a beggar and certainly would be a social outcast. Well, in the story that Jesus tells, uh, this widow who we um, can uh, reasonably assume was struggling as it was actually had an adversary as well. Some, Some unnamed local villain was harassing her. Perhaps the person was intimidating her physically. Perhaps uh, he was withholding or stealing resources that were uh, meant to be used for her support. Um, In any case, the adversary, the enemy in the story is winning and the widow is losing. She had no good way to protect herself. She, she had no relatives that were willing to advocate for her or offer her help. There was, there was no governmental organization to come to her aid. The widow had only one chance, one chance of defending herself from this villain. She could go before the local judge and plead her case and, and in essence just kind of throw herself on his mercy. And that is precisely what she decided to do. No surprises there. That's the only thing she could do. And so enter the second main character, the judge. Jesus describes the judge in two very brief statements. One, 
he did not fear God, and two, he did not respect other human beings. Wow, this guy has glowing credentials, doesn't he? No fear of God, no respect of human beings. Let's make him a judge. That's great. Now, without an appropriate fear of God, the judge had no sense of accountability. Do you understand that? He was responsible to himself. He didn't care about God. He didn't care about any higher power. He was responsible only to himself. He didn't respect God's word. He didn't respect God's wisdom, didn't respect God's justice. He didn't worry that there was some future day of reckoning coming, that he would have to to give some account for his decisions. And therefore, he just made his own justice. And when we're responsible for making our own justice, um, you know, what decisions are we going to make? We're going to make the decisions that are most advantageous for us. And so that is what the judge was doing. That's how the judge was living. He was also without any respect for other human beings. This judge couldn't care less how his decisions affected the, the people who came to him looking for justice. Since people did not matter to him, he felt free to, to use and abuse whoever he wanted. And so he really, had, uh, he really had no reason to take his precious time and listen to what the widow had to say. Because he didn't see his brothers and sisters as image bearers of God. He saw them as problems and interruptions and headaches and hassles. Nevertheless, as the story implies, the judge was the widow's only hope, the widow's only chance, the widow's last resort. And as the situation of the story becomes clear to us, you probably want to say to her, you know, don't, come on, don't even waste your time bringing this case to court. It's a lost cause. It's just going to add insult to injury. The judge is going to just laugh in your face and throw you out in the streets. And that, of course, is exactly what he did. But the story doesn't end with the judge dismissing the widow's case. That's what makes it interesting, right? Hurt and shocked by the behavior of the judge, the widow gathered her wits and evaluated her situation one more time. With grim resolve, she said to herself, you know, I just don't have any other options. The judge is my only hope. Somehow, somehow, I've got to get him to protect me from this person who's harassing me. How could she do this? I mean, no higher court would hear her case. We don't read anything about a higher court than that. Penniless, she couldn't even bribe the judge to like, uh, make some sort of decision uh, her way. And so she used the only tool available to her. She decided to pester him. Pester him. Like my little sister pestered me all the days of my youth. Every time that judge turned around, she was right there in his face. She followed him home. She followed him to work. She would pester him until he finally offered her protection, put her in jail, or killed her out of frustration, right? That is precisely what the widow did, and it worked. 
She pestered him until one day the judge threw up his hands and said, I'm done. I can't take it anymore. Somebody fix this woman's problem. I don't care what it takes, just do it. She's driving me crazy. And the happy ending to the story is that this crooked, uncaring judge finally gave the widow protection from her adversary. And the Gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus told this story to show his disciples that they should always pray and never give up. Now, as I mentioned, a lot of believers make a grave error in interpreting this parable. They think of the story as an allegory, and they look at it like this. We human beings are just like the widow, right? We're impoverished, we're powerless, we have no connections, we have no status, we're, we're unable to handle our problems alone, and we feel like we have nowhere to turn. God, then, must be like the judge. He's not really interested in our situation all that much. After all, he's got an entire universe to run. It's best not to bother him unless it's really, really important. If we're desperate, though, we can do what the widow chose to do, and we can pester God, and then sooner or later, we might wear him down enough to, to wrench a little blessing from his tightly closed fist. Eventually, maybe like the judge, he'll throw up his hands and shout, I can't take it anymore. Somebody solved Drew's problem. It seems like he's always got him. Now, does that interpretation sound right to you? Does it sound right? Well, I certainly hope not. You might be surprised at how many believers seem to think that God is just like that judge. They're absolutely convinced that the greatest hurdle, the greatest adversity with regard to prayer is finding that lost key that will somehow unlock God's vault of blessings that God would rather not open for us. Now, brothers and sisters, please don't ever think of God that way. Jesus never intended for this parable to imply that God was anything like that callous judge. In fact, that is probably why Jesus provided an interpretation as soon as he finished telling it. He said, you have heard how the unjust judge reacted to the widow's plea. Now take a look at how God the Father sees the situation. Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. See, according to Jesus, this story is not an allegory where elements and characters of the story stand for realities outside of the story. Instead, it's a parable it is a short story with a surprising aspect that forces the listeners to think. And this parable in particular, I would describe as a study in opposites. I want you to take a look at the contrast. Pay close attention here. First of all, we are not at all like the widow. In fact, our situation could not be more different. Look, she was 
poor, forgotten, lost, abandoned, powerless. She had no relationship with the judge whatsoever. For him, she was just another item on his to-do list. But we're not abandoned. We're not abandoned. We are God's adopted sons and daughters. We are in the family of God through Jesus Christ, which means that we matter quite a bit to him. You don't have to tiptoe into the presence of God trying to, trying to discover the right secret to attracting his attention. He wants you to come to him in prayer. He wants you to come to him with the confidence that he loves to hear your voice. And secondly, our loving Heavenly Father is, is nothing like the judge in Jesus' story. The judge was crooked and unrighteous and unfair and, and disrespectful and uncaring. He was completely preoccupied with his own uh, personal matters. By contrast, our God is righteous and just. Our God is holy and gentle. Our God is responsive and sympathetic. Don't make the mistake of thinking that you have to figure out a way to wrench a little blessing out of God's closed fist, that you need to trick him somehow into giving up what he would rather keep for himself. That's not the way of it at all. The Bible again and again makes clear that God loves to bestow blessings on his children. It is inherent to his very nature. In other words, it is who he is, a giving God, a blessing God, an encouraging God, a nurturing God, an empowering God, a loving God. All through the Old Testament, in fact, we see the theme that God is ready and willing, looking for opportunities to pour blessings out on his people. Take a look at what it says in Deuteronomy 28. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you to obey the Lord your God. You will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed and the crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. Your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You will be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. That covers a whole lot of life, doesn't it? Well, in the New Testament, the theme is extended and, and expanded and made even more explicit. There we learn that we have been adopted as God's very sons and daughters and have become heirs along with Jesus Christ to his eternal kingdom. That's a pretty good thing. Romans 8 says, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. What does that say to me? It says to me that if human fathers, with all of their imperfections, and I if human fathers love to give good things and bestow blessings on their children, Imagine how our perfect Father in heaven must delight in giving good gifts to us, in answering the prayers of his beloved children. So is God able to answer our prayers? Absolutely. 
Is God willing to answer our prayers? Without a doubt. Therefore, children of God, rest securely in the love of your heavenly Father. Be confident in prayer and rejoice in the truth. Amen. Let's pray.